Welcome to the Wilton Baptist Church, where we worship God, walk with others, and win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Pastor Steve, and our congregation is pleased to share this message with you today, and we pray it'll be a blessing and an encouragement to you. Blessings as you listen or watch. Good evening. Good evening. Let's try that again. How's everyone tonight? We're good. Okay. Awesome. I don't know. In Spain, uh, our, our church is very vocal. So when I, I call out to them, typically we have a response. I don't know if it's uh, the culture or what, but I like to have responsive connection with uh, with you, the audience, and with what I'm doing up here on the on the platform. So please, if I ask a question, like I said last night, uh, don't feel bad in calling out and answering out loud, okay? It's not going to bother me. Uh, it may make your parents a little embarrassed or shy or say, like, why are you talking in church? Uh, don't worry. The preacher's giving you uh, permission to respond to questions, but not to talk amongst yourselves in church, okay? Are we good? All right, we're good. Awesome. I like it. Somebody's already taken the advice. So I want to share with you a, a testimony, I guess, to start out tonight before I get into the message. Um, so we have been partnering with Wilton Baptist Church since 2011 uh, in the country of Spain. And so you guys have been partnering with us since we started in Spain. So a little bit of our history. We were missionaries in Ireland prior to Spain. God moved, used the government to move us from one place to the next. Honestly, it was his hand moving. It wasn't the government. It was God's will for us to be where we were, for us to be in the situation that we were, for him to be able to show us what it was that he was going to have us do in the mid to long, uh, uh, long duration plans. I guess you could put it that way. And so Wilton Baptist Church came on and started supporting us right when we were in that transition period going to Spain. I didn't know a lick of Spanish at the time, so you guys stepped out by faith to take us on. Now, granted, my wife spoke perfect Spanish because she, was, she grew up in a, a missionary family, was born in Santiago, Chile. So the weak point as I was talking uh, uh, with the people at dinner tonight, I was the weak point. So I had to learn the, the, the language because it wasn't going to last very long, me using grace as a translator uh, to do everything. And so we arrived in Spain. I started learning the language, and it wasn't long before I realized I don't have a gift for languages. <laughs> and so I had to put a lot of work into that. And God was gracious to me. He was merciful to me. And I was able to learn the language. I am standing here now after 11 years. I don't speak perfect Spanish, so don't expect that from me if you, if you do speak perfect perfect Spanish. I don't speak perfect English, as you can tell. So Spanish is even worse than English. Okay? So, um, but through God's grace and his mercy, I was able to pick up the language. And we were in Madrid for roughly about three years. And then we moved down to the south of Spain to a town outside of a major city. The major city is called Seville in English. You've probably heard of the Barber of Seville, right? That's Seville, Okay? Uh, we call it Sevilla because it goes by a different name uh, or a little bit different spelling in Spanish. And we're on the outside of that city in its own incorporation of a city called Dos Hermanas, the Two Sisters. And it was there that God led us through many different conversations and talking with different missionaries and coming down and visiting and seeing uh, the work that needed to be done in this place that God confirmed that we were going to go to this this town of about 150,000 people in, the, in what we call the city of Dos Hermanas, and then what belongs to Dos Hermanas outside the city limits, or in the area of Dos Hermanas, we have about 210,000 people that live right there. And we are part of what we call the Metroplex of Sevilla. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And it was a little over seven years ago now that we were able to start what is called the Olive Grove Baptist Church in the city of Dos Hermanas. Um, the work in Europe in general, especially Western Europe, is very slow. But by God's grace and his mercy, 
God has given us wonderful people. We have a church uh, that we average roughly about 20 to 30 people on a Sunday morning. Um, God has been good to us. It feels like we've started the church probably two or three times. Uh, That's why I have a gray beard. It's not just my two boys, Gideon and Silas. This is also church planting right here that I'm sporting today. Um, But I'm telling you this story to get to the point where it's only up until recently that we've seen God do a work in the people that we've been working on for so long where I can be here tonight with you and I don't have to worry about what's happening, although my pastor's heart, I worry, right? I don't have to worry about what's happening at our home church tomorrow because I have three men that I've been working with, two I've been working with for the past four years, one recently uh, in the last year or so has come alongside, and I have three men now that are Spanish or are long-term in Spain. One is married to a Spaniard, one is half Spanish, half Nicaraguan, and the other one is full-blood Spanish, Sevillano to the core, um, right from the city of Sevilla. And these men are good, faithful Christians. They have grown exponentially in the last three to four years, and they have come alongside, and they have done what we see in the book of Nehemiah. They have strengthened their hands for the work that God has called them to do. And I give God the glory and the thanks for what he's doing in these men's lives because it's these three men that are doing the work of the ministry along with the other people at the Olive Grove Baptist Church, but they're doing the work of teaching and preaching in my absence. And so what you guys have here is what we're working towards in Spain. And it's what we have on a smaller scale. But by God's grace, we will see that church grow to have even more impact, not just in Dos Hermanas, but in all of Sevilla. And if you'd like to see pictures of the work of the church, I don't know if we're going to show a video or not, um, but I'd love for you to see the faces of the people because it is honestly my joy to serve as the pastor of the Olive Grove Baptist Church and to really be working myself out of a job because that's the job of a missionary, right? To come in, start a church, and to be working with other men in order that those other men could take over if God calls them to do so, uh, where the missionary was, and then to allow the missionary to work with that church to start other churches in the area. So we ask that you'd pray for us. It's a result of your missions dollars that you give in Faith Promise, as Pastor mentioned. It's as a result of your prayers that you pray for all of your missionaries and those that do pray for us in, uh, uh, specifically. We thank you. We covet your prayers beyond anything else. Uh, It is what we need more than anything else. But also, I want to challenge you with one thing before we get into the message, and that is one of the greatest ways for you to grow in this desire and, um, I guess desire would be the best word, this desire for missions is to leave your country and do a short-term missions trip. Come to Spain. Even if it's just, hey, I'm going to take a holiday, and while we're in Spain, we're going to visit the the hazes. I want you to know that there is a house that has an open door in the area of Sevilla that will welcome you with open arms and will provide you with Spanish meals because we like to cook as much Spanish as we possibly can while we're there. Um, And we want you to come and see what God has been doing in our lives and in the ministry there so that your eyes can be opened wider, and so that you could know how to pray more effectively, you can know what the needs are more personally, but also maybe God would use that not only to open your eyes, but to open your heart to be willing to go. Because ultimately, we need more laborers, as Jesus said, in the harvest field, and the harvest is wide open. So please come visit us and uh, have God do a work in your heart while you're there uh, in the area of missions. So tonight, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach than we did last night. Last night, um, we spent the entire time 
laying the foundation for a proper biblical perspective of missions. And we looked at every passage of Scripture uh, in the Bible that talks about mission or missions or what it is that God is doing in this area of missions. And we saw that it's not just something that takes place in the Great Commission in Matthew. It's not just something that we see in the New Testament age in the church, but it's actually something that we see all throughout time, starting with Adam and Eve. We touched every book not every book of the Bible, but every genre in the Old Testament. Then we continued into the New Testament through the Gospels. We talked about the Great Commission passages. And we even went all the way through the epistles into Revelation. And we highlighted that God is a God on mission, always has been, always will be. And he's constantly seeking out his one people. Now his one people, as we figured out last night, is not just Jewish, but Jewish mixed with Gentile. One people, not Jew, not Greek, but different God's chosen people, the people that God uh, uh, is saving in this world, and we make up that which is God's people. And that's all throughout Scripture. And tonight, I want to take a more in-depth look at what we know as the most famous missions passage in the Bible. Does anyone remember what that was? What was it we talked about it last night? The most famous missions passage. It's in the Gospels. It's in Matthew. Matthew 28, verses uh, 18 through 20. But I would ask you to open your Bible to Matthew 28, and we're going to read a little bit more than just verses 18 through 20. We're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to read all the way down <coughs> to verse 20. Matthew 28, starting in verse 11, and we'll read all the way down to verse 20. Can we try something tonight? This is something I do every once in a while in our church, and I enjoy it, whether other people do or not, but I like to torture the people that are sitting in the pews and in the chairs a little bit. So why don't we do this? Why don't we do a responsive reading? Do we know what responsive reading is? So I'm going to read verse 11, then you guys are going to read verse 12. Then I'm going to read verse 13, and you guys are going to read verse 14. And we'll go like that until we get down to verse 20. You with me? Yeah? Okay, so with a loud voice, read uh, verse 12 and then verse 14. No, yeah, verse 12 and then verse 14, and so on and so forth, okay? Verse 11 says this. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for this time that we have to open up your word, to dive in deep into this passage of Scripture, passage of Scripture that we've all heard many, many times, read, preached, taught, uh, no doubt even in this church. Uh, many times this, this passage has been brought up, especially during missions conferences. Help us to fully understand the depth of this passage, what it means, and may it impact our thinking in regards to missions. I ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor, for the water. So this is probably the most full-throated or full-ordered expression of the call to missions that we have anywhere in Scripture. As I said last night, 
Uh, we have script, we have missions all throughout Scripture, but really Matthew 28 is probably even more um, that passage that we go to to talk about missions, even amongst the Great Commission passages. We we refer to it often. And the first thing that I want us to see is that the Great Commission comes to us through the context of a conflict. Oftentimes we don't start this uh, talking about this passage of Scripture all the way back in verse 11 or even at the beginning of verse 28. But the reason why I did tonight is because I want us to see a little bit more of a broader perspective in regard to this passage of Scripture why do we have it? Why it's important? And I want us to notice what the conflict is. And we see what the conflict is starting in verse 11 all the way down uh, through 17. But really I want to focus first on verses 11 15. And I think it's very interesting. I'm not going to reread it because we just read it in order for us to save a little bit of a, uh, time. But the conflict that we see here is going to help us to understand missions. So what is the conflict? Does anyone kind of have an idea of what the conflict is? You don't need to respond. This is kind of more a rhetorical question. But do you have an idea of what the conflict might be here? So we, we understand that Jesus has already been crucified. He's already raised from the dead. And now we have this moment when these guards, these are Jewish guards, these aren't Roman guards, these are Jewish guards that are coming in, and they come into Jerusalem, and they go to the council of elders, and they tell them, okay, you ready for this? Jesus is gone. Here it is, these guards are supposed to be guarding this tomb, uh, and all of a sudden, that stone rolls away, he's not there anymore, they go in, they find out, He's not there. His bedclothes are still there. We don't know what's happening. They go to Jerusalem and they tell this council of elders about what's taken place. And it's interesting to me that in this story, in this conflict, we see what is going to really propel the message of the Great Commission, or the reasoning behind the Great Commission. These watchmen were offered money to tell a story, and it's a story that took root and was believed extensively. It's what we see in verse 15, right? Where it says, so they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. I find it interesting that it says in verse 12, and when they were assembled, the elders, right, and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers. Do we understand the context of large money? Does anyone have an idea what large money might be? Anybody? They made it rain, right? We understand that concept. They have a gun now that you can actually put money in and make it rain. I don't have enough money to put in. They're going to be like $1 bill coming out. But... They, they gave them a, a, a large sum of money. They gave them what would be a substantial amount of money. And why were they giving them this substantial amount of money? Because these guards were, to, were taking their own lives in their hands. These guards were going to have to tell a tale, tell a lie that would ultimately end the Roman Empire. Because even though they're not Roman guards, they're still answerable to Roman government. And remember, it was the Romans that killed Jesus, that crucified him. And so these guards are going to be answerable to the Roman government. And we see this because even these elders understood what they were asking them to do. These elders were probably the same elders that maybe paid Judas those 30 pieces of silver to uh, uh, turn in Jesus to them so that they could then take him to the Romans and then have them crucify him. And now here they are, they're paying money to these soldiers, to these guards, so that they can spread a lie about the resurrection of Christ. And these elders, they know what they're doing because they tell them in verse 13, they tell them, hey, uh, tell everybody, spread this lie, that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And they understood what they were asked to do because in verse 14 it says, and it came 
And if this come to the governor's ears, who's the governor? The governor of the region, not just Jerusalem. We're talking about of the region, this Roman governor. If it comes to the governor's ears, he says, we will persuade him and secure you. See, in the Roman Empire, if you were a guard or a prisoner, uh, uh, a jailer like we see in Philippians, if you were somebody that had charge over somebody else and you had to keep them safe, Guess what happened when you lost your charge? You either suffered the same penalty as that person if they were a prisoner, or in this case, they probably would have been put to death because they were to be guarding the tomb of this, this one Jesus who is causing up a stir in divisions, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of the region. And so these elders know exactly what it is that they're telling these guards to do. And this story and many others have been propagated and believed over uh, the centuries. Since the time of the crucifixion, since the time of the resurrection, we have had many, many stories told about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What we see here is that men would rather believe fictitious stories rather than the truth about what actually happens. In the 19th century, certain theories came out, such as the swoon theory or the conspiracy theory or the hallucination theory. And I'm not going to go into uh, uh, all the detail tonight, but these were theories that were invented because people did not want to take what Scripture said and believe what Scripture said. And so they had to make a story up so that they could, they could make it more palatable to them and to others so that they could talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People would rather believe any other story than that which is according to Scripture. And these elders knew that. Tell them this lie. We know it's going to put you at risk of death. We'll take care of you. Here's the money. And we see that this story took root. It was propagated even up until the point where Matthew makes this distinction in verse 15, that it was commonly reported and that the, uh, in, amongst the Jews even until this day. What day? The day of the writing of this book. And so we see that it had power behind it. Why was it that they did not want the story of the resurrection of Jesus to really be propagated. Because they know the stories and the prophecies of the Messiah. Because they know that if Jesus really did revive from death, then they have crucified the Messiah that they were waiting for. And that they are now the villains of the story not the heroes. But it's interesting to me that this story had so much believability that even some of the 11 disciples were affected by this story. Look at verse 16 and 17. It says, Then the 11 disciples w went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. <clears throat> and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Not just that he had re, uh, revived, but they doubted uh, because they were impacted by the story that had been told. Not just, hey, he was dead and now he's alive. This can't be because it's not humanly possible. They had missed the whole concept that it's God incarnate, God with man. That's what Emmanuel means. But that they were also impacted because this is in connection to what, with what the story had been told in verses 11 through 15. Not just that they were concerned or didn't fully understand what the resurrection was all about or that it was actually going to happen. They shared a life and ministry with Jesus for three and a half years. And yet some still doubted who he was and were impacted by this story. This is the conflict of the Great Commission. This is the conflict of the Great Commission, not just in that moment, but for us today. People still today, whether it be Spain, whether it be over in Israel, whether it be uh, here in Wilton, whether it be in Schenectady, I really like that name. It's such a cool word to say. 
It doesn't matter where. Men and women would rather believe a fable, a story, a more believable story than that of Jesus rose from the dead. It's the same conflict today. When I preach the gospel in Spain, the thing that I have to get over with people or the hurdle that I have to jump is getting them to believe that what God says is truth, not what their heart and what their mind want them to believe or what culture might want them to believe. That's the conflict. And that's the setting for the Great Commission. So now I want to see a little bit of the context. You say, well, Brother Hayes, didn't you just talk about the conflict being kind of the context? Yes, but I want to see specifically the context of the Great Commission. Why is it so impactful? Verse 18 says this. Excuse me. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So, this is Jesus after his ministry, after his crucifixion, after his resurrection. Why is it now that he's saying that all power is given unto him? I want you to think about it a little bit. Why is he saying now that all power is given unto him in heaven and earth? Wasn't he God before the, the resurrection? Was he God before the resurrection, church? Of course he was. He was 100% God. So why is it now that Jesus is saying, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth? You see, because the context that we see here for the Great Commission is that all authority has been given unto Jesus in every aspect of life and eternity. You see, we, under, we need to understand something. To, to understand why is it that God, through Jesus, can now say that all authority has been given unto him, we need to understand something about the incarnation. The incarnation did not rob Jesus of his deity. He continued to be God, as we've already talked about. He was still God after his incarnation. But now, by nature of his uh, resurrection, or by nature of his uh, incarnation, uh, is what I was trying to say, um, it changed the Godhead. You say, Brother Hayes, there's no shadow of turning, and I agree with you. There is no shadow of turning if we want to see this as a change. But what I want us to understand, when I say change the Godhead, up until this point, the Godhead had not taken physical form. Up until this point, up until the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, the Godhead was spirit. We have God the Father who is spirit. We have God the Holy Spirit who is spirit. And Jesus had not come in physical form. He had to come and be born of Mary so that he could take a physical body. And so up until the incarnation, there was no physical form. And so when we talk about the resurrection, we have to consider the implications of the incarnation because when we talk about the fact that Jesus died, it was the first time that God had even considered or even uh, maybe the better uh, word would be experienced the concept of death because God always existed. He did not take a physical form, so therefore he could not experience death. He was eternal, always existed, nothing could change that. Therefore, he could not experience death. But Jesus, being made a little lower than the angels, coming in this earth, being born of Mary, was 100% God and 100% man, so that he could experience death. And we know that the death of the cross was really what the focal point was. But not only that he experienced death, but that he conquered death, had power over it, and rose from the grave. So not only does Jesus have a, have, a, have a physical body, but he experienced death, rose from the dead, conquering death, hell, and sin. Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10 says this, <clears throat> Wherefore he saith, when he is ascended, up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? 
He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Colossians 2 verses 13 through 15. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven all your trespasses blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross and having spoiled principalities and powers he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 15 say this for as much then as the children are partakers of the of flesh and blood he also who's the he jesus he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's us. So when we talk about the context of the Great Commission, we have to take into consideration the incarnation. We have to take into consideration the ramifications of that incarnation on the resurrection and what that means for the Godhead and ultimately what that means for us because we were those people that were in bondage, that we were in fear, we were subjugated to the person that had uh, power of death, which is the devil. And it was Jesus himself who conquered death and hell and Satan through not only his death but his burial and his resurrection. So when Jesus gets to the point in verses 19 and 20, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute, where he tells the disciples and the church that they are going to be witnesses everywhere. They're to be baptizing in the name of the Father. They're to be teaching people to observe all things. And they're to do it in all nations and all these things. And he says, and lo, I'm with you even unto the end of the world. Amen. He is doing this with the concept of there's a huge conflict, there's a battle that's raging, you need to fight it, don't worry, I have all power, now let's get to the commission. And that's what we're going to do right now. Verse 19 and 20. What I want to talk to us about tonight, about the Great Commission, <coughs> specifically these verses 19 through 20, is I want, I want us to understand the scope of this. The Great Commission is global, multi-ethnic, evangelistic, and comprehensive. And we're going to talk about each of those concepts. First, I want to talk about the fact that it's global. Verse 19 says this. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. I would like to draw our attention to three words. The first word is go. The first word is go when we're talking about the concept of global. This doesn't just give us the idea of an, of an imperative to go. But what it actually means is, and as you're going, it's the idea that you're already in process. You're already in motion. You're already moving and doing what it is that you're supposed to be doing. It's this idea of you're moving about this, this earth, and as you go, as you, everywhere you might step, everywhere you go, uh, you need to go with what we're about to talk about. It's an assumption of continual going that has no limitation or given, or it's not given any limitation or given any scope in this word. It literally means as you go everywhere. <coughs> you say, Brother Hayes, everywhere. I mean everywhere. The next two words give more scope and give more definition to our going. Those words are all nations. You say, well, that doesn't really give us a whole lot of limitation, does it, Brother Hayes? Absolutely not. Because all nations means literally all nations. It means that there is not one single people group. Now, we have to consider the fact that back in the days of Jesus, uh, we didn't have these nice little borders drawn up and uh, have maps that had each nation in different colors and we could see all the different distinctions. No, they kind of ran into each other. And as the different empires came, those borders changed. And really what, what Jesus is saying here when he talks about all nations is what we mentioned last night. We're talking about every tongue, every people group, every kindred, 
um, all the peoples of the earth. And so what Jesus is telling his disciples in this very first verse of the Great Commission, in verse 19, he says, go, and he tells them to all nations. He means there's not one place that you can go in this world that does not need the message that I'm about to give to you. So there's no wrong place. There's no wrong people. There's no wrong language. The Great Commission is global. And we see this lived out, and I mentioned it a little bit last night, Acts 1.8. Jesus is speaking again to his disciples after resurrection. He says, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as we talked about last night, reshaping our focus, not to make America the hub or the central location of the gospel mission, but that America is actually the uttermost parts. And us being parts of the uttermost, that should drive us to want to expand the gospel reach to places that have never been reached before and to peoples that have never heard the preaching of the word of God in their own language, never had the opportunity to lift up a Bible and read it in their own language because there are people groups still to this day that do not have God's written word in their language. Us being part of that uttermost group ought to drive us to have a passion and a desire to see the gospel go global. I think we do. I think we do have that desire. Then why is it that as Christians, oftentimes we can drop the ball and we can favor one group over another group. I've seen missionaries disgracefully make decisions on who they're going to give the gospel to based upon the people group that they belong to in their city. That's not a missionary. It's global. It's multi-ethnic. The two words, all nations... In Greek, it's, I'm going to murder this word, okay? It's pantata ethne, okay, in the Greek. It literally means all ethnicities, or more accurately, all ethno-linguistic groups. That's what it means. Every group of people, every language that's spoken, every ethnicity that exists in this world, so it carries, <coughs> excuse me, the idea of translation or linguistics. It also carries with it the idea of, of education because we see later that we have teaching involved and now that teaching is very specific. But if we're going to go to all people groups, all linguistic groups, it means we're going to have to take what is scripture and if it doesn't exist in their language then we're going to have to translate it into their language so that they can know what God has said. Because if the conflict of the Great Commission is that man doesn't want to believe what God has said, then we can't just show up and tell them stories. We have to show up and give them God's word. We're not talking about races here. And I know that's a hot-button topic in the States right now. It's a hot-button topic in Spain. We understand as Christians, every culture comes from the same race, the human race. There is more that connects us than divides us. We have more in common than distinctions. And so therefore, everybody, every ethnicity ought to be on our radar we ought to be going to everybody in our community. There should not be anyone that we are not willing to share the gospel with. Why? Because Jesus said, there's a great conflict. You need to teach them my word. There are divisions, and I've got all power, and I can overcome those divisions. And I can overcome every aspect of that conflict. But you've got to be willing to go and take the message. 
And when I say you, I'm talking to myself, and I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to everybody who might be listening on live stream. Every Christian must be willing to take the message. Why? Because the Great Commission isn't just for pastors or missionaries or Bible school teachers or principals or people that are in full-time ministry. No, you understand that the Great Commission is for everybody that calls themselves a child of God. Everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now granted, in missions, we do send out specific people to do specific tasks. If they're missionaries to start churches in foreign, foreign countries, uh, doctors going with the gospel to do certain things, I understand that we do send out specific people to do specific jobs. But every single believer is a missionary in the context that they're to take the message. Ethnicity is defined by Cambridge (coughs) as a large group of people with a shared culture, language, history, or set of traditions. It's not defined by color. It's not defined by external factors. It's defined by culture and language and history and traditions that you share with the other people around you. The gospel, the Great Commission, is multi-ethnic, and it's global in its scope. This implies planting churches. If it's multi-ethnic, then it means that we can't just have the church here at Wilton, Wilton Baptist Church, and then send out guys to go and preach the gospel in another place and expect all of them to come back to Wilton Baptist Church. You understand that? If it's multi-ethnic, then what we need to understand is that when we go into these other people groups that have a shared culture that might be different than ours, the idea is that we go, we evangelize, we teach, we preach, we give the gospel, we overcome that conflict through the power of Christ, And then we start churches within that people group so that they can continue to do the same thing and reach more people within that culture. That's what it's all about. Churches plant churches. We do not exist to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or provide shelter for the homeless. Now, I did not say these are not things that Christians should not do. But we do not exist as a church to do those things primarily. Those are all things that are good things to do and we should do them. But the focus, as I talked about last night, the focal point of the church is not the social gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is that there is hell, there is a devil, there is sin in this world. Sin must be paid for and we are held accountable for our sin. And the only way to escape that accountability is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so if we can preach that gospel while we are still providing these other aspects of life for people, shelter, food, and clothes, great. But that not be the focal point. The focal point ought to be Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when I go into a a culture like Spain... It would be easy for me to just say, hey, I got a box of clothes. I'm just going to put clothes on people's backs and hope one day that they ask me about Jesus. That would be fairly easy. And then I could write back to my churches saying, hey, did the gospel work today? I gave a guy a shirt. We, we laugh because it's comical. But here's the thing. In the world that we live in today, more people are interested in providing food, shelter, and clothing than they are providing gospel. There's nothing wrong with having goodwill to your fellow man. We should. But the foundation of that goodwill is the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. My wife and I were looking at videos. She had seen it before me, and then she shared it with me of the crisis that was taking place in um, 
in the Ukraine. And we all know about what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. But what's happening right now is people feel so bad about what's happening in Ukraine that a lot of help is being sent in the way of clothing and food and all kinds of things. And there's organizations that are over there. They're receiving the donations, the clothing and food and whatnot. But it was shocking to me when Grace showed me the, the video because it was actually a missionary who's there on the ground who is receiving help from churches. And he's going around behind these centers that are there to help the Ukrainian people. And he's opening the dumpsters and you're seeing packages of clothing and packages of food and packages of stuff. Why is that happening? People are being generous and they're giving, but the people that are on the ground that are supposed to be doing the helping, all they care about is the financial backing that comes with opening up a center that they get from government resources. And this missionary is saying, hey, don't send to some organization. Send to somebody who's actually going to care for the soul of the person. And in caring for the soul of the person, they're going to provide them with the help that they need physically. That pours us into the next <coughs> aspect of the Great Commission. It's evangelistic. Verse 19, we're staying there, but we're going to focus on the latter part of that, that verse. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Baptism doesn't save. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to find where baptism saves. It's always baptism as a result of belief in Jesus Christ. Now you'll find it, especially in the book of Acts, you're going to find it very close, very quickly after. In fact, there's belief, and then there's baptism directly after that, which I think is amazing. But baptism doesn't save. But the fact that we are to baptize assumes salvation beyond the fact that we are teaching all people groups who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what he wants to do for them. This also implies <coughs> this evangelistic aspect. It also implies a rejection of false gods. Evangelization isn't just preaching the gospel. Evangelization is teaching people the difference between what is truth and what is false. That goes back to the conflict of the Great Commission where people would rather believe a lie, believe a fable uh, instead of the truth. And so part of the Great Commission is teaching people what is a false God and who is the true God. And so when we talk about evangelizing, oftentimes we spend more time talking about what isn't truth than we do talk about what is truth. Why? Because people have been raised in this mentality of uh, pluralism in this idea that more equals better and we have to weed through all these false teachings and false gods and this is something that not just missionaries and pastors experience it's something that you're going to experience in your daily lives in your schools in your in your workplace and you need to understand that evangelistic means that we don't just push that off or hey i don't know how to answer that no if the if you come up against somebody who has a question about something that you don't know anything about Inform yourself so that you can get to the evangelistic aspect, not just weeding through the false gods, but giving them the truth. Oftentimes you have to deal with the negativity before you get to the positivity. We're not just adding another little g God to their plethora of gods or teachings. We're erasing all of that and we're setting up the truth of who God is. Who he says he is in his word. It's evangelistic. It's multi-ethnic. It's global. And the last, it's comprehensive. <coughs> Verse 20. Teaching, all, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I love it. Jesus puts it very simply. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. There's so much that we could unpack just in that little statement. 
So everything that's not gospel, everything else that Jesus taught his disciples, everything about Christian living, everything about doctrine, everything about the apostolic teachings, that's the all I've commanded you. Whatsoever I've commanded you. And so when we talk about the Great Commission, it's not just that we teach them the gospel, and not just that we reject false gods, but we teach them everything that we see in Scripture. You say, Brother Hayes, that's a big job. You're right. It's a huge job. It's a massive job. And it takes time and effort and finances and prayers and lots and lots of people to do that job. This is exactly what the, the apostles did during their generation, or what we call the apostolic age. They weren't just satisfied with teaching people about the gospel. They, they knew that they had to go beyond the gospel once people were saved and teach them the doctrines that are in Scripture. The proclamation of the gospel comprehensively changes the life of a sinner. You see, we don't have to get people clean before they come to Christ but what we do need to do is allow that gospel to take root in their heart after salvation through the teaching of the Word of God and let the Word of God change them. The implications of the gospel are complete. They're comprehensive. They're all-encompassing. There's not one area of life that's not changed by the gospel. It is the gospel that changes the lives and here's the thing that we all need to understand and I think might encourage us, especially as we look at our American culture. It's the gospel that will change lives that will eventually change the culture. I don't have to go into Spain and change Spain's culture. God will take care of the culture changing in the life of the believer. And then that believer will influence other people and God will start changing that culture little by little. The commission is comprehensive, takes time. The content of the commission is global. It's multi-ethnic, <coughs> it's evangelistic, and it's comprehensive. That's the Great Commission. Oftentimes we read these verses and we use them, and they're just kind of sayings that we say, right? But how often do we take time and s stop and really meditate on what those verses actually mean? the context behind it, the conflict that drives it. This is the Great Commission. But here's the thing, like I said earlier, the conflict hasn't changed. Mankind still wants and will believe anything other than the truth of the resurrection or the truth of the gospel. The context is still the same. Jesus was given all power, all authority, in all of heaven and all of earth, because of his incarnation and his resurrection, and all authority and power is still in his hands. Nothing has changed. The content has never changed and will never change. Why? Because this book is eternal and it is perfect. The Bible says that it is forever settled in heaven. That means <clears throat> that not only is it here, it is everywhere, and it is in, uh, uh, in heaven with God at this moment. There's nothing that will change it. It is perfect in every way. We don't need anything else. We don't need another book. We don't need another revelation. We have everything that we need right now. The content will and has never changed. The problem is that our understanding and application of the Great Commission of what we see here <clears throat> is often partial or completely based in error. So I want to say three things to you tonight, and we'll leave. The conflict of the Great Commission ought to challenge us. I know it's daunting. I know that when you come up and talk to somebody about the gospel, you're met with story after story or philosophy after philosophy or belief after belief and nothing matches up with truth because men would rather believe lies 
than the truth when we talk about the gospel. Let that challenge you. Don't let it defeat you. Let that be a challenge to understand, to learn, and to go forward knowing, hey, there's something beyond this challenge. The challenge is possible to overcome, not because of anything that's in you or me, but because what comes next is that context that all power is given. To who? To Jesus. And as a result of that, he gives us the ability to work in people's lives, to share with them the gospel, and his Holy Spirit empowers that preaching and that teaching, and then God will change that life. So the conflict ought to challenge us. The context, it ought to embolden us. I've never had a problem talking with people in my life. Not one time. And here's the thing. I am not an outgoing person. (laughs) I am not an extrovert. You might be surprised by that. I'm actually an introvert. I would rather be on my own, like today with a snow day, being in my hotel room studying was amazing. It was energetic to me. You know why? Because as introverts, being by ourselves is what gives us energy. It's relaxing, and and, and I don't know. There's just something about it. But I can't live my life as a Christian governed by my introvertedness. Jesus gave all power. Jesus has all power, and because he has all power, he has given me the ability to go and talk with people, and it ought to embolden every one of us, the fact that he is all-powerful. There's nothing that can overcome him. There's nothing that can subdue him. There is nothing that will overtake him. It ought to embolden us in our witness. And then the content ought to inform us. When I say it ought to inform us, it ought to be that which is the foundation for everything that we teach, everything that we do. It ought to be what gives us the definition of everything that happens in our Christian life, the reasoning behind everything that happens in our Christian life, why we do what we do. I can't tell you how many times I've come across people that don't know the reasoning behind the things that they're doing. Or they give a reason and Most of the time it has to do with, well, preacher set this up and preacher said that and pastor did this. I want to challenge each and every one of you here tonight, and I think Pastor Harness would agree with me. I know he would. You know what Pastor Harness would like more than anything else is that you know from Scripture why it is you do what you do in your Christian life. Missions is no different. I am not this cheerleader kind of preacher, rah, rah, lots of stories, shish, boom, bah kind of stuff. What I love to do is just stand here and and preach and give scripture and allow God to change your hearts. Because why? I believe that as we understand scriptures and the context and the meaning and the implications of it all, that will inform everything in our Christian life. And we won't need somebody to stand up here and have the pom-poms and say, good job, you're doing great. No, you will know that you're doing great. Why? Because you're, you have been informed by the foundational truths of the Word of God. And missions is no different. We want to see that airplane soar, preacher, much more than 40,000. Let's go 50,000, 60,000, 100,000. One day, that would be amazing to see. But here's the thing. It will get there not because that Pastor Harness is up here telling you, you're doing a great job, you need to do just a little bit more. That's not, that's not why it's going to happen. It's going to happen because you are convinced in your heart that it's what God wants you to do. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to pull out your wallet and you're going to give even more, not just to missions, but to this church so that the gospel mission can be accomplished in Wilton and beyond. This ought to be the foundation of everything that we do. And so when we talk about the Great Commission and we talk about the, con- the, the content that it contains It is everything that is in Scripture, not just the gospel of salvation. It is everything about the Christian life, and that ought to inform every decision that we make. So my question is this. Last night I talked about whether or not you were involved in mission. God is always on mission. And when we get on mission, what we're doing is we're connecting with him and his eternal mission. And I asked if you were personally involved. I want to challenge you tonight to not just be involved, but to be involved 
in agreement with the scriptures. You say, well, Brother Hayes, I go to church. Of course it's going to be within agreement of the scriptures. Here's one thing I've, I've observed in Christianity, and it's not a good thing. We think that when we give and we think when we raise our hand to pray, that that means that our heart is right. But oftentimes, it's the external things that lull us into this, this sleep of apathy in our lives. And we never actually do what we do because it's what God wants. We do what we do because we see other people doing it, and it's because it's what the church does. I want to challenge you tonight. Let God's word in regard to missions be that which draws you to do more, not because you want to look good, but because you love God, you love Jesus with all your heart, and you want to see this world impacted for Christ because it's what God wants. There's a saying that when God owns this, he owns this. When God owns this, he owns those little ones that are in our house. When God owns this, he owns everything that we have. So why is it that it's so easy for us to just status quo, give my monthly amount to missions, appear to be doing good work, and yet in my heart, Really, God doesn't own it. Maybe in salvation, but in my daily life, God doesn't own it. Here's the thing. God doesn't want hypocrites. God wants true followers of him. God doesn't want just your heart for salvation. God wants your heart for every aspect of your life. And the only way for him to do that is right here. It ought to inform everything that we do. From our daily walk with him to our giving to missions so that others can go in our place because we'll never go to that country. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, in this area of missions or in your own personal life, make sure that it's his word that is the foundation of everything that you're doing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know what it is that we're supposed to do. We know what it is to be a good Christian. We know what it looks like. We can recite verses and we can say all the right words and we can pray all the right prayers and we can give all the right amounts to all the right things. But Lord, help us. Help us not to be driven by the superficial aspect of being involved in something but not actually being a part of something. Lord, help us to understand that the conflict is real and that I can't just run away from it, that we can't just hide our heads in the sand like the ostrich and hope that it goes away. Lord, help us to engage in that conflict to be a part of it. Help us to be challenged that we need to not run away from the, that cultural battle, but we need to involve ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would allow the context that you have given all power and authority that's in heaven and in earth into Jesus' hands. Help that to embolden us. Help us to see that as 
while I may not have all the answers, I may not be a bold person in and of myself or in my personality, but I can be bold for Christ because it does not depend on my power. It depends on his. And Lord, I pray tonight. I pray that the context of the Great Commission, I pray that it would inform every aspect of our life as a Christian. Not just what we do in regards to missions, but in regards to every aspect of our Christian life. Of course, that would imply missions. Lord, help us. May we not just give because it's what we do. May we give because it's what you want from us. May we pray not just because there's people on a prayer list somewhere that Pastor mentioned one time. May we pray because we are desirous that you would do a work through and in the lives of the people that we're praying for. And Lord, I pray that if there's somebody here today that would say that they feel like you're calling them into ministry, may they not be called into ministry because of pressure or uh, it's something that's expected of them, but may they be called into ministry because they know without a shadow of a doubt that it's what you want according to your word. Lord, I don't know what it is you're doing, and I don't know why it is that you've had me go this direction with these messages, but I do know that this is what you wanted preached. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower your word in the hearts of every hearer and that we would be convicted and thus convinced of the truth. And may we respond in kind. Lord, we love you and we ask you to do mighty things in our midst this weekend. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.